Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Riverwood. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Aaron, uh, teaching pastor here. And um, whether this is your first or your 40th time with us, I'm really, really glad that you are here to worship Jesus with us. Uh, in case you didn't know, this is Super Bowl Sunday. So the football fans in the room already know that it's the New England Patriots versus the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, I saw a map to... I, I saw a map today that showed what state was rooting for which team, and I think like three-fourths of the nations are Rams fans tonight. Uh, people are tired of the Patriots dominating. Uh, if you are not a sports fan, tonight is your night to enjoy some creative commercials, all right? So all of us should be able to get something uh, out of it, uh, hopefully some good food uh, in there as well. Um, well... Hopefully you guys survived the polar vortex uh, this past week. Some people were calling it the Arctic Blast. I think some parents were calling it Winter Prison. Uh, <laughs> but whatever you called it, hopefully you made the most of it. Uh, our family tried to capture a few moments in there together. So one night we played games together as a family, and I got resoundingly crushed in Monopoly. Uh, another night uh, we decided to watch a movie, and uh, we were trying to deliberate what movie to watch. My youngest son's not a big movie person, and yeah, you know, we decided this is what we're going to do, and so we decided to introduce him to the MCU, the Marvel Comic Universe. All right, now a few, I, I'm sensing a few fans in here, and a few of you are going, "Oh my goodness, this guy speaking's a nerd." Okay, I like it. I'm not into it that much. All right, so I'm I'm, a, I'm an okay nerd, um, but we decided rather than start with Iron Man, which is what a lot of people start with, because that's kind of what kicked off the whole universe, if you will. They kind of ignore those two Hulk films. Uh, they uh, uh, normally start with Iron Man, but we decided to start with Captain America, the first Avenger. How many of you have seen the first Captain America movie? Okay, quite a few of you. Um, if you have not seen it, it's the story of Steve Rogers. He is living back in 1946, desperately one, or was it 1942? I forget what it was. He desperately wants to get into the U.S. Army to go fight Nazis during World War II. But his problem is he's short, he's scrawny, and he's sick. He's got asthma. He's just not a healthy dude. And so he keeps going to these recruiting offices, and they keep rejecting him. So he goes to another recruiting office, and he has to lie about who he is, because all they'd have to do is pull up his file. You know? And so he's, he's lying about who he is, and they keep rejecting him. But finally, of course, in comic book world, he gets an in, and they end up giving him this serum that turns him into who we know as Captain America. He becomes this super soldier, and he becomes big and buff, and he probably could win the 100-meter dash, uh, like set a world record in the 100-meter dash and a world record in the marathon all in the same day. I mean, he just becomes like the greatest physical whatever specimen on Earth. And they want to make an entire army. Of course, the guy who invented it ends up getting killed, and so they can't make any more, and, and so you only get Captain America. Uh, nice and convenient for uh, comic book world. But I want you to imagine that they made an alternate movie. That after he ends up getting the serum into him and getting big, buff, and jacked, he just returns back to his apartment and eats Cheetos and reads the newspaper all day. Like, he doesn't go out and fight crime. I mean, now, now I realize that would be a really, really boring movie. I hope they never make that one. But at the same time, it, it would be just a travesty to see someone's life completely changed, and yet it doesn't affect their daily living. You know, the sad thing is that that story, while we'll never see that in a movie, it's lived out almost every single day. Because there are people who have had their eyes opened to the story of Jesus. 
They've realized that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ was done for them. That Jesus, even though he lived a sinless life, he went and died in a sinner's place so that humanity's sin could be forgiven. And when their eyes are open to this and they realize that this isn't just some myth, it's not just some tall tale, it's a true story. And it was for them, it's like they're injected with gospel serum. And on the spiritual level, everything changes. And yet so many people just go to work and they go to their clubs and they hang out wherever and they don't live out a different life. It's the equivalent of spiritually eating Cheetos and reading the newspaper every day. And God did not create you for that kind of story. He wants to write a better movie through you. A movie that will wow people and wow you. That's why we're going to do a series called The Everyday Gospel, where we're going to look at this story of the gospel and see how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It doesn't just change our Sunday. It changes our everyday. How it can take the mundane and give them meaning. How it can redeem our routines. And it really becomes a big, major part of us. Now, when I was uh, back in November, I was working on my preaching calendar for all of 2019, and I was putting this series together, and it took me no time at all, and I had 15 different subjects that I felt we could address. And I, I brought it to the elders, and they said, Aaron, this looks great, but wow, 15 weeks on this. Like, maybe we should break this up in chunks. I thought, that's a brilliant idea. And so that's what we're going to do this year. We're going to come back to this series four times in July, we're going to look at the self edition of the series. We're going to look at how does the gospel change our view of ourselves, our appearance, our past. All right. How does this affect the way we view ourselves? It changes this relationship. Then in August, we're going to look at how does it change the way we use money? So we're going to do the money edition of the series. How, how does the gospel change our wallet and our bank account? Then in, I think it's in October, we're going to do the life edition, where we're going to look at how does the gospel change the way we go to work, the way we arrest, uh, the, the way we just kind of go about our daily living. Which means that here in February into March, we're going to do the relationship edition. We're going to spend some time looking at how does the gospel not just change our relationship with God and our relationship with ourselves, how does it change our relationship with those around us? And so here's going to be our schedule for the next several weeks. Today, we're going to be talking about the uh, subject of marriage. And then next week, we're going to do sex and then parenting, then others, and then difficult people. Now, the reason I'm bringing this to your attention is because next week, as we talk about sex, I realize some of you are parents and sometimes your children are in here with you, right? So I just want to give you the heads up, all right? Maybe you want your kids in here so that that can help create a conversation with them. Maybe though, you're not quite ready to have those sort of conversations yet. And so you're thinking, all right, I guess I'm going to send them to Kids Creek. All right. So this is just to give you a heads up. We're going to be talking about this. Now, I'm going to let you know, I'm going to keep it PG-13 or even less. All right. My own kids will probably be in here listening to this. Uh, and so we're going to handle it very appropriately. But for many people, this is a very sensitive subject. And so we're going to handle it sensitively. But I firmly believe that the gospel affects this. And this is a part of our relationships, especially within marriage. So that's what we're going to address next week. But before we get to that, we need to talk about marriage. But before we can get to that, I feel like I need to destroy a couple of myths about marriage, as well as go and kind of look at the gospel and lay that as a foundation as we then move into marriage. All right. So first, let's destroy a couple of myths. If you are not married, maybe you feel pressure from people particularly those within the church, that you need to get married. 
that if you aren't married, that there must be something wrong with you. Maybe some of you, you were single for quite a while and you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's because there's this belief that marriage is like the ultimate, like that's the goal. If you can convince someone to exchange vows and rings with you, you've made it right now. Most people who are married know that's not true. All right. All you did was you exchanged one set of problems as a single to another set of problems to being married. Right? So it is not the goal. And so what I want you to hear is that if you believe that, that uh, you have to be married in order to finally be completely human, you need to hear loud and clear, that is bunk. That is not true at all. Humanity, true humanity is found in Christ. He was the true human. He lived out as God designed humanity to be done. And so true humanity, the way God's made you, is found in Jesus, not in marriage. Right now, we're going to see today, marriage is a beautiful thing. It's incredibly beautiful because God made it. But it is not the ultimate thing. Jesus is the ultimate thing. All right? Now, on the, on the flip side, while some people think marriage is like, you know, one of the greatest things in the world, on the flip side, there are people who think marriage is awful. Like, it, it's a negative. And, and so that's how you end up getting t-shirts like this one, where you've got a, a stick figure groom uh, frowning, and you've got a, a bride on the shirt smiling, and underneath it says, game over. Right? It's because they have this view that, oh man, you get married, you're like, it's, it's like a relational prison. Like, it, it, it's no fun at all. You just avoid it at all costs. We're not taking that route either. All right. It is not the worst thing. It's a beautiful thing. All right. So we're not going to get caught in that trap today where we're going to look down on marriage. But we're also not going to get caught in the trap where we think marriage is the absolute greatest thing. Today, we're going to see that marriage actually points us to God and it points us to the gospel, that it has a bigger purpose than just to make you happy, that it actually has the purpose to help make you holy as well as to help point people to Jesus. That means we need to now look at the gospel. Uh, here at Riverwood, we have a definition of the gospel of this. The gospel is the ongoing story of God redeeming broken and imperfect people and restoring them into the perfect and complete image of Jesus. And God does that through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Right? So that to us here at Riverwood, this is what the gospel is. And so that means it affects everything. We, we see this scripturally in Titus chapter 3. You, you don't have to turn to this. We're going to be in Ephesians 5 today, but I just want to highlight this from Titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared— he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you look at that, you see that when you place your faith in Jesus, when you believe that Jesus' death on a cross was done for the forgiveness of your sins, it changes everything. And, and so, for instance, your spiritual state changes. You go from being separated from God to now being adopted by him. And, and, and not just connected, but you become like his son, his daughter. It, it's almost like the adoption papers were written up and he signed it in blood to make it permanent. 
And that's what he means there in, in verse 7 when he says that you become an heir. In other words, if you are an heir of God, it means everything that is his now belongs to you. So your spiritual state changes. Also, your, your filthy sin it's now washed away. If you go back there to verse five, it says that it's by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So your sins are washed away. They were, they were, you know, dark as crimson, but you made white as snow. And so because your spiritual state has changed, your sin has been forgiven, it now should affect everything, which means it affects the way you view yourself and it affects the way you interact with others. And so that's why you don't act like in verse three, where you don't act foolish any longer. You're no longer disobedient. You're not led astray. You're not slaves to your own passion. You're not passing your days in malice and envy and hating others. Instead, you now become Jesus-centered and you begin to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. No longer becomes about you. It now becomes about others. In other words, the gospel is the ongoing story of God redeeming broken and imperfect people and restoring them into the image of Jesus. That means that this gospel is to affect everything because part of our stories are our marriages, if you're married. And that means the gospel wasn't just there so that you could attend church on Sunday, sing a few songs, read the Bible, and feel good about yourself. It is to infiltrate every single aspect of your life, including your relationships, and that means if you're married, it includes marriage. But I think an even better way to say it is that the gospel doesn't just change your relationships, including marriage. It changes your relationships, especially marriage. Because you see, the most intimate relationship that you can have outside of a relationship with God through Christ is a marriage. And, and, and it is so intertwined that person knows you better than anything. And that is the perfect place for God to do some of his deepest work in you, of shaping and molding you into the image of Jesus. But to see that happen often is an incredibly hard thing. So if you brought a Bible with you today, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. If you're not quite sure where Ephesians is, I've got a little cheat sheet up on the screen for you. If you do not own a Bible, we encourage you after our worship gathering, stop by our Give and Grow table. We've got two different translations back there. We will just give you one, and that would be our gift to you. We also encourage you, if you have a phone and you already have a Bible on it, pull that out. Use that this morning. But if you want to, you don't have a Bible on it, go ahead and take some time right now and download a Bible to it, and then feel free to use it here. We are totally fine with digital Bibles. If you don't want a digital Bible in front of you or a paper Bible, I will have the scripture up on the screen for you. As you turn to Ephesians 5, I just need to let you know that much of what we're going to hear today will be hard. Uh, two reasons. Number one, much of what we're going to hear is going to fly right in the face of our culture. Uh, this is not going to be a culturally sensitive message. It, it, it's going to sound offensive to some people. The other reason this is going to be hard is because it's going to fly right in the face of our own selfishness. Each of us longs for certain things in life, and much of what we're going to hear today is going to actually call us on that and ask us to change that. And so it's going to be hard to hear. But if you'll stick with it, if you'll work through this with me, hopefully by the end you'll see that marriage is an absolutely beautiful thing that God uses. And if you're not married— Hopefully it'll lead you to pray for those, your friends who are married. It'll prepare you that if one day God does have you be married, you'll know better how you'll need to interact within that. And also for those of you who might be struggling within a marriage right now, that this might give you ideas of how you can help support your spouse and love them, even if they are being estranged from you. So let's work through the hard stuff together as we look at this. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, as we begin to dive here into Ephesians 5, I'm asking that you be the teacher. 
just because I have prepared and planned some things to say, I, I realize that I can say anything I want, and yet if it doesn't penetrate a heart, it, it's done nothing. So God, I'm asking for you, through your Holy Spirit, to do what only you can do. That you would part the waters to our souls, that you would gush in your grace, your love. As we hear these hard things, we would find ourselves being willing to enter into them, to go through them, because we realize that there's something better than just our own comfort, our own ease, and our own happiness. So God, would you give us the guts today to hear this, and not just to hear it, to walk out of here today and apply it. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, the Apostle Paul starts off his uh, section uh, by addressing wives, so we are going to start there as well. So we're, join me at verse 22 there in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I've shared this story before, so forgive me if you've heard it. Um, but in the first year of marriage to Leanne, uh, we were seniors in college. We uh, got done with that first semester and we're on Christmas break. So we went to uh, Shenandoah, Iowa to spend the holidays with my folks before heading to Topeka to see hers. And it turns out that a bunch of my friends were home at the same time. This is pre-Facebook days, so we actually had to like, call each other and, and found out that a bunch of us were back. So we all decided to gather at one of my friends' house. So we went over there that evening, and I think probably a good 25 of us, 30 of us uh, showed up. So we kind of had a little mini class reunion. And we're just hanging out, talking. And uh, two of my friends end up kind of sitting near each other, and they both went to Iowa State. And they had a mutual friend who had recently gotten married. And so they were, they saw each other, ran into each other at that wedding. And they started talking about the wedding. And the, the guy sitting next to me and, and the, the gal sitting across from him. And she starts to rag on the sermon that the pastor gave at the, the wedding because he used Ephesians 5 as his text. And she was still, two weeks later, incensed that any pastor would have the goal at the wedding to tell this bride she's going to have to submit to her husband. And she starts saying, if I ever get married someday, I am not letting some pastor say that of mine. I am not submitting to my husband. I, women are not to be put under. And, and she just, I mean, she just went on. Now, I do not like confrontation. So I take there nice and quiet. And I kind of tried to shift my body this way. My wife's in a conversation over here. Maybe I'll just try and listen to this. But it was really hard to ignore. She was so upset. Maybe as I read those verses just a moment ago, you found something similar bubbling up inside of you. It sounds cruel. It sounds like women are less than men. It sounds awful. This flies right in the face of the values of so many in our culture. What I want you to see today is that Paul is not trying to put the woman under the husband and she's less. He's actually trying to help set her up so that she will thrive in this marriage. And so I, to help you see this, I want to point out a couple of things. First, let's look and see what Paul says right before he tells wives to submit. Uh, jump back to verse 20. He's kind of wrapping up here a section on how to interact with, you know, within the church. And so he's saying, giving thanks and always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I have never heard anyone complain about that verse right there. I've never heard anyone sit there go, oh, I can't believe they said to submit to one another. No, most people go, oh, wow, that's beautiful. 
Like, like you, you're honoring each other. You're respecting. You know, you, you, you put the other person first. Oh, that's, that is so poetic. That's gorgeous. But why? No. Come on. You see, when you start putting it in perspective and realize that Paul's not talking about like, hey, the other person's better than you. Like they're smarter. They're stronger. They're, they're just more important. So just, just put yourself under their authority. No. He's saying submission is an act of respect. It's an act of honor. It's an act of care. Like, this is important. In First Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter's talking about marriage, and he tells wives this very similar thing, to submit to their husband. But he uses another word with it. He says, to relate to their husbands with a quiet and submissive spirit. Have you ever done an exercise where you just get quiet for a moment? Suddenly, you start realizing. You hear the fans from the lights. You can hear the kids back in Kids Creek. You start noticing all these other things. And guess what? All those things are outside of you. That's what God, God is saying through Paul and Peter to the wife. Quiet yourself enough. Stop thinking about all your own problems. And notice what's going on with them. So that you can love them and serve them and lead them to be who God's calling them to be. That's what it means to Submit. The next thing I want you to see is it's not just about submission to the husband. Look again at verse 22. Paul writes, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Do you see what he's getting at there? This submission to your husband, this, this is really more about submission to Jesus. If you think about it, your marriage is just for this earth. Right now, I, I've had some premarital couples come into my office and somehow this will come up that, you know, your, your marriage is only for this, this life. And they'll look at you and go, really? Like, we're not going to get to be married in, in heaven, like forever? And, and like, you can see them being sad. And you think like, oh, that's really cute and adorable. You guys love each other that much. But no, it, you're, you're not going to be married forever. Because Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, he says, for in the resurrection, so in the afterlife, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven because there's one marriage in heaven. And that's between Jesus and his church. And, and you see this in Revelation 21, the big wedding ceremony. And God's church, God's people being united with Jesus. That's the marriage of heaven. So that means your marriage is just for this life. So that means, wives, when you breathe your last, your marriage to your husband is done. But your relationship with Jesus is not if you are a Jesus follower, you will be in submission to Jesus for eternity. And now you, when you look at the cross, you see how much God loves you. And so you will have no problem at all submitting to Jesus for eternity. That's why you can now submit to your husband. Because it really isn't about him. It's really about Christ. Because if your eyes are on your husband, you've already experienced it. He's gonna mess up. Us guys... We screw it up, and we make it hard for you sometimes to submit to us. That's why it can't be about us. It has to be about Jesus. Because you realize that if you look at your husband, and you're like, you know what? I'm not submitting to this jerk. Like, I I'm going to nag him. I'm going to annoy him. I'm going I'm to shape him. I'm going to domineer over him to make him into the husband that I think he should be, the type of husband that I need. And if that's your approach, you're basically saying, God, I don't think you did it right. I don't think you quite know what you're doing with my husband. I, I don't think you got me the right guy. So I got to take over here. I know a little better. So I'm going to do what I can to manipulate him into the husband that I need him to be. But if you're a Jesus follower, 
you would be saying, no, I'm completely surrendered to God, which means that God put this man in my life for a reason. And I may not like all these things that he's doing, the things that he's watching, the things that he's saying, the way that he's acting with other people. But God, I trust you and I love you. So I submit, not because he's so awesome, but because you, God, are awesome. Now, it's hard. That's why if you're going to ultimately submit to Jesus, you have to keep your eyes on him. It's why you continue to pursue Jesus in prayer and through the scriptures, in worship. You get into community with others. You get with other women who can encourage you and love you and support you so that you can fulfill what God has called you to do, to love and serve and submit to this man. That's how the gospel changes a marriage for the wife. Now, I realize what I'm about to say is going to sound very offensive because I just acknowledge that what you, the role you wives have is very difficult because you're married to us. But I believe that what God calls the husband to do is actually harder than what he calls the wife to do. Now, before you start throwing tomatoes and booing me off the stage, let me, let me explain. Join me. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For for no one ever hated his own flesh, but but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. I uh, was a young adult pastor in my previous gig before uh, planting Riverwood. And uh, I I had a number of young adults uh, who would come to me in their marriages saying, Aaron, we're really struggling here. Can, Can we talk? And so they'd come in and we'd do a little bit of marital counseling. And I, you gotta understand, I used to not, like Ephesians 5. I, I was a little uncomfortable. Maybe I had some sort of like PTSD because of that conversation at that Christmas break where this girl ragged on it. Like, I didn't want to be the guy to tell a wife, you have to submit to your husband, especially if the guy's an absolute jerk. So I, I used to avoid this passage. But what would happen was this couple would come in, they'd sit on my couch, we'd start talking, they're telling me all the problems going on. And inevitably, I would think, oh, well, Ephesians 5 addresses this. And so we'd open up Ephesians 5 together and we'd read through it. And they would see, sure enough, God actually is speaking into our situation. And then the next couple would come in, you know, a few weeks or months later. And next thing I know, we're in Ephesians 5. And so finally it dawned on me, oh, maybe rather than waiting until they're having marital problems, we study Ephesians 5. Maybe I should do it during premarital counseling with couples and study it with them. So I began to study it with premarital counseling couples. Now, I had one couple that came into my office she had been attending our church for a while. Uh, he, though, had not. But I didn't fully know that at the time. And so I began to do with them as I had done with many couples. We began to study Ephesians 5. And I came to this passage right here, and I look at the husband, and I said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then I looked at him and said the exact question that I ask almost every groom and every husband who I've gone through this. I said, And how did Christ show his love for the church? And this guy says, uh, he went every Sunday. And in the moment I realized I didn't ascertain where he was at spiritually. 
Because no, Jesus didn't go to church every Sunday because he hadn't even started the church yet. That happened after his resurrection on the day of Pentecost. That's when the church really launched. But also, even if there was the church, Jesus would not have used the language, I'm going to go to church, because in Jesus' mind, the church is his people. And you don't just go to the people, you're with the people. You love the people. And so when, when Paul says there that, you know, Christ showed love for the church and gave himself up for her, what he's saying is that Jesus died for the church. So husbands, if I were to look at you and say, so how did Christ show his love for the church? You would need to say he died. And then I get to say, congratulations, you get to die. And that's why I think what God calls husbands to do is even harder than what he calls wives to do. Now, that may not seem fair, but let me explain. If you have a job, you have a boss who might occasionally give you a certain task or an assignment, or they want to set up a certain system, they want things done a certain way, you may not think that's a great idea. You may think, oh, wait, there's some holes in the system. We could do it actually a little better this way, or no, that's not going to work. That's not going to make us more money, or that's not going to make things easier. I, and so you try to come back with your other ideas, but nope, boss says, nope, this is the way it's going to be. You reach a point where you just kind of shrug your shoulders and go, okay, you're the boss. And in a sense, you are submitting. But now, if you're asked to give up all of your rights, to give up all of your own desires, all of your own wishes, it's a little harder than just shrug and go, all right, you're the boss. Because you're being asked to give up everything that you might hold dear. Because now it's not about you. It's about these others. You have to die to your own desires, die to your own wants, die to your own wishes, die to your own plans. Why? For her. Because Jesus did not go through the cross for his own good. Jesus lived a sinless life. He did not have to die. And yet he did it for you and for me. It was for us. He had our good in mind. And that's what you were called to, husbands. You were called to die to yourself for the sake of your wife, to set aside your own dreams, to do what is ever necessary for her. It's hard. And that's why, husbands, you have to do almost the exact same thing that the wife does. You have to keep your eyes on Jesus. Because in your own power and strength, you cannot do this on your own. You are still too selfish of a creature to do this perfectly. It means you have to be completely redeemed. You have to let this gospel continue to restore you into that perfect and complete image of Jesus so that you will love your wife like Christ would love her and you can live with her like Christ would live with her and you can do what God has called you to do. So wives, you are called to submit to this man because it's ultimately about submission to Christ. But at the same time, husbands, you are called to die to yourself for her sake. And the only thing that's going to help you do that is, is the gospel, is to look at Jesus and hold this dear. Now, I realize that for many of you, this makes theological sense. In some aspect, this actually makes some theoretical sense. But like, what does this look like in an everyday sense? Like, what should Monday look like if you're going to truly try to apply the gospel and let it change your marriage? So let me give you an example from my own marriage. When I was 16, I uh, had a job. And so my dad says, hey, you got to start doing taxes. 
And so here we are in tax season. So my dad sat down with me, showed me, taught me how to do my own taxes. And so I began every year to just do my own taxes. Now, I'm normal. I didn't enjoy doing it, but it was really simple. I was just a single guy, still living with my parents. It didn't take too terribly long to get done, but I could accomplish it. So when I got married, comes tax season, and you just think, all right, this is what you do. You know, in my family, the, the, the bird men, they would do the taxes. I watched my dad do them, so all right, I'm going to do it. But as I start to want to do them, my math major wife sidles up next to me and starts wanting to do them with me. And I suddenly discover she actually is better at this than I am. Like, she would catch some details that I would miss, and she actually, like, was having fun. And it was weird. <laughs> now, I could say, woman, I'm in charge. I'm going to do these taxes. You stay out of this. And that would make me a really, really bad leader because God has gifted me with a woman who is phenomenal at this. So the wise thing would be to let her. But I also do not demand you are going to do this for me. No, she gladly wants to do it. And so I, in a sense, to lead her and lead our family, I submit to her and give this to her and let her do it. But she wisely tells me, all right, here's where we're at. I need this, you know, information still, you know, so I'm still a part of the process. It's just, I'm letting her take the lead. You got to realize that what Paul is calling us to, for the husband to be the head and the wife to be submissive, it's not this ranking system. It's a partnership. God is saying you are completely equal in this. One is not better than the other. And that's where the struggle comes in. Because so often we as Americans are constantly ranking things. We're always looking for who is the better, who is the best. And we see it in election cycles and we see it in football polls and we see it in who's the goat, the greatest of all time. I mean, like we are constantly ranking. In fact, tonight at the Super Bowl, when the game is done, they will name an MVP, a most valuable player. They will rank them as this is the person who is the absolute best in the game. And so that's how we think. And so we think, oh, the husband's the head of the household. So that means he's better. No. In God's economy, first does not mean best. Think of the Trinity. You've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. They are all completely equal. They are all fully God. There's one God revealed in these three persons. And yet there's an order to it. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. The Spirit submits to the Son. The Son submits to the Father. And they are not less because of it. And no one is greater because of it. Look at healthy teams. Tonight, everyone will be talking about the New England Patriots and Tom Brady because he's like 474 years old and he's still playing football. And so people are going to go, oh, this is incredible. This is amazing. And other people are going to rag on him. They're going to act as if he is the most important person out on that field. And yet he could not do what he was doing without a good offensive line to protect him, without good wide receivers who could actually catch the ball, without good running backs who could help take the uh, shoulder of the burden with him. The team is not Tom Brady. The team is the team. And so in order for a team to operate, everyone has to do their part in their role and they have to realize they're all equal. If you want to see your marriage thrive, don't make it about power. Don't make it about position. Make it about partnership. Make it equal. And husbands, that means you die to yourself for the sake of your wife. Wives, it means you submit to your husband. And it means you got to do this even if he or she is not fulfilling their role, right? Husbands, it is really, really difficult to die to yourself 
when your wife is just like yelling at the top of her lungs. And yet, that's what you're called to do because it really isn't about her. It, this is about the gospel. Jesus died for you even while you were still a sinner, while you were still weak, while you were still an enemy of God. And even when you were still ranting against heaven through your sin, Jesus died for you. So it, it, it's not just about her. This is about the gospel. And, and wives, when he's not acting in a respectable way, still give him respect. Try to show him honor. Still care for him. Yeah, it, it's hard. But Christ died for you so you can submit to him and so you can trust that God's at work here. Now, a, a word to husbands. Your role is so important in this marriage because the way you interact in it affects her submission. If you will fulfill your role, if you will die to yourself, she's going to see how much you love her, how much you put her first before yourself, and she's going to have no problem submitting to you. Now, wives, do not use that as an excuse to not submit. Say, well, I'm just, I'm just waiting for you to finally like die to yourself. Like you're still too selfish. I, I'm, I'm not going to submit until you get the, your act together. No, you, you go ahead and do it. But husbands, you can help her a ton if you will take the lead and you'll die to yourself. So husbands, I'm going to give you a challenge. Maybe you need to sit down with your wife. You need to look at her. And you need to say, can you please tell me where I'm not dying to myself? Because if anyone knows, it's her. It's going to take guts. It's going to take courage. But if you want to have the type of marriage that's gospel-centered, then it's probably going to be necessary. There's one more thing. All of this is really pointing to God and the gospel. And that's what Paul finishes this up with. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Have you noticed through this whole passage, Paul starts talking about the role of, of like a, a wife to her husband, and, and yet he can't help but talk about Christ. And then he starts talking about the husband. And next thing you know, he's talking about Christ's love for the church. And, and here we are. He's come back to the husband, how a husband, when he loves his wife, he's really loving himself. And then he quotes back from Genesis, which we often use at weddings, that the two become one. And he says, but I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. Like, it's just so intermixed. That's because your marriage was not just designed for your happiness. It was also designed to point people to Christ. Because wives, when you submit to your husband, you're actually showing people what it looks like for the church to submit to Jesus. And husbands, when you die to yourself for the sake of your wife, you're showing them how Christ gave up himself for us. And that means that your marriage could actually be one of the tools that God uses to help people find him and follow him. Your marriage might be exactly what's needed to actually help someone else. But you're not going to be able to help them if you're living in a selfish way. But if you will not live the selfish way, instead you will live a selfless way, you will help others see what marriage should look like. And wouldn't you know it? You actually end up with the type of marriage you longed for. Rather than going at it through the selfish avenues that our culture tries to do, where we get married for companionship, or we get married for emotional intimacy, or for physical intimacy, or just because we're afraid to be alone. Instead of going at it selfishly, 
We start coming at it selflessly. And what ends up happening is we end up finding the happy marriage that we longed for anyway. Now, I'm not going to guarantee that because it takes two to make this work. Maybe you find yourself in a situation where your spouse is just not quite on board. At least today, you know what your role is. So will you go and do it as worship to God, to honor him? Because if you do, God might just change them. And he might use it to help your kids, to help your neighbors, to help your coworkers. See that there is beauty in the gospel, that in the pain of life, there's something here. And they will see that it isn't just that you have a great marriage and that's the ultimate. They'll see that God has given you a great marriage and he is the ultimate. So that's why I encourage you, wives, submit. Husbands, die to yourself for the sake of the gospel. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take these hard words that I've just said and you would just let them infiltrate into every part of our mind and soul and heart. That these aren't just some theological, theoretical words that are out there, but this is a part of who we are right here, right now. God, I pray right now for the marriages that are struggling. God, would you give them hope? May that hope be found in Jesus. I pray that they would not just be seeking after happiness, but that, that they would surrender to you and let you make this about their holiness. God, for those who have a great marriage, I pray they would just take a moment to celebrate that. But not rather than think that they've made it and they're done, they got it, that they would continue to go deeper and continue to surrender to you. God, would you help each of us in here submit to Jesus? Would you help us to see how he died for us? And then that means that the gospel is now our motivation to bring into this important relationship. God, I pray for anyone here that is not married and longs to be. I pray, Father, that you would encourage them, that they would see that their ultimate worth is found in Jesus, not, not in marriage, that they are not a less than because they have not partnered up with someone else. May they know that they are not alone. May we as a church family just love them for who they are right now. You know, we would just pray that you would work in their life as you need to. And if that's marriage, great. But if it's not, great. Lord, I pray for those who've been through a divorce, that they would just find complete healing through the gospel, that they would know that they are forgiven, but God, that they would also repent for anything that they did in that, so that whatever relationship you take them into next, whether it be a, a dating relationship or in, into um, just a, a friendship, that they can truly love other people because your love has saturated them. God, you've made marriage to be beautiful. But because of sin, it's become painful. That's why we are so glad that you can redeem this and that this gospel can change even this most intimate of relationships. So God, no matter where we are at relationally, would you just help us each to surrender to you and we would see that you are good, you are God, and one day we get to be united with you like in a marriage. And what a joyous day that will be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.